0: In the Gospels, Jesus says things that many view as promoting a form of pacifism, the idea that violence is always unjustified, no matter the situation. But is that really what Jesus was teaching? And how should we square Jesus' command to love our enemies with the way that God's people were commanded to conquer and even devote to destruction their enemies in the Old Testament? In our interview today, I'm talking with Tom Schreiner, James Buchanan Harrison, Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Associate Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Tom is also the author of a commentary on the Book of Revelation in Crossway's ESV Expository Commentary series. Let's get started. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast.
1: That's great to be with you, Matt. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, so today we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on peace and nonviolence in the New Testament, uh, and how that, that does or doesn't fit with what we see in the Old Testament, and then how we as Christians should actually apply that teaching to our lives today. And there's, there's a lot there to cover. So I wanted to start first with looking at some of those key passages in the New Testament, where we get a, a glimpse into what many would say uh, is, is Jesus' pacifism. Um, his pacifistic ethic, so to speak. Mm. So mm. one of those one of those passages is in Luke six, and so I, I wonder actually if you could start us by reading uh, Luke chapter six verses twenty seven to thirty. Sure. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate
1: you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from someone
0: who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Hmm. So what are some of the different ways that Christians interpret this passage and others like it? There's a few other parallel passages uh, that sort of uh, follow along the same lines. Uh, how, would, how would Christians maybe interpret this, this passage?
1: Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, the verses 27 and 28, there'd be pretty much universal agreement. Uh, one, one of the things that stands out in Jesus's teaching is that we're to love our enemies. Uh, I don't think that contradicts the Old Testament, actually, and some people disagree on that. There's some people who think that Jesus is standing against the Old Testament, but I don't think that's so. I think we have some indications in the Old Testament, that we're to love our enemies, but at least there's a clarity here in what Jesus says about loving our enemies. Mm. But it gets it gets more controversial when we get to verses 29 and 30, because th- this is where some have read it as endorsing a, a pacifism, right? Where he says, if anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also, and then if anyone wants to take your 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 coat. Your outer garment, right? Don't don't hold back your shirt or your tunic or your your in, inner garment either. I mean, I heard years ago, in terms of an interpretation, Ron Sider. I I wonder if people still know that name, but he Ron's a a, a good brother in the Lord, and Ron's a a, a pacifist. And hmm. I remember him interpreting passages like this and saying, you know, if uh, Our enemies are on the border. This is Jesus' teaching. We should let them come in and slaughter us. Hmm. Because uh, that's what Jesus is saying. If someone wants to injure you, you turn the other cheek. So that's, you know, that pacifistic view, which really goes back to, right, some early Anabaptists and Mennonites in the 16th century. I, I think that's been attractive to people, in in recent years i mean yeah. we all know that war war is horrible uh i think we'd all agree if we're thinking carefully that um both sides in war sin
0: hmm. and
1: it's so jesus is teaching if you take it in a pacifistic way there's something i'm not a pacifist let's just say that but I don't ter- interpret the passage that way, but I just want to say there's something really attractive about that, right? Yeah. There's something extremely noble about it and and um
0: well, and uh, would some it, wouldn't some go on to say even beyond that, there's also something very straightforward about that reading. you know mm. it seems like it seems like the plain meaning of the text in this case would just be, yeah, he's just saying what he's saying, and so we should just apply it as faithfully as we possibly can. So, so, But you say you're not a pacifist, so why do you think maybe that uh, plain reading or maybe simple reading of Jesus' words maybe doesn't do it justice? Yeah.
1: Well, and I think it's very similar, if I could use an analogy, and I think I'm getting around to answering your question, in Matthew, where uh, Jesus says, uh, you know, don't take vows, don't take oaths. And, you know, the very, a, a simple meaning is oh, you, you ought not to ever take an oath or make a vow in a, in a court of law. And, you know, some in the Anabaptist tradition uh, hold that view. And uh, But I think, if I'm going to kind of back in by talking about oaths, I th- one of the interesting things is, okay, there's that plain admonition, but when you actually begin to look at the New Testament, it's interesting to see that Paul Paul engages in oath formulas. Mm. You know, 2 Corinthians one twenty three he calls God as his witness. And uh, there's several texts where most scholars agree Paul is, Paul is using an oath formula to certify the truthfulness of what he's saying. And then, of course, in Hebrews 6, we have God himself taking an oath to, to guarantee to those of us who as human beings, the truthfulness of what he's saying. Hmm. We are weak enough that we need not only God's word, but we need an oath to guarantee to us that God is speaking the truth. So I bring that up because those words about oaths and vows come from the Sermon on the Mount. And in Luke, it's a different context, but it's the, the the same content you know whether this is the very same occasion in which these words were given probably jesus said these things often right yeah he 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 taught these sort of things often but but if let, let's just look at this text he says if anyone hits you on the cheek offer the other also I, I actually think it's a little bit clearer in matthew because matthew talks about the right cheek that it what we have here is uh not someone hitting you on the cheek to kill you, or to even um, uh, beat you up in a fight. Yeah. But but what this is is an insult. You know, you're slapping mm. with someone on the uh, the back of your hand on the right cheek, and uh, the, you know this is hard enough, right? Jesus is saying, <laughs> if someone <laughs> insults you, um, don't reply. Now, you know, here's the first thing I want to say. Is Jesus actually literally saying, "If someone slapped you on the right cheek, turn to him the other"? Now, I I would I would suggest no. That's mm. that that would be artificial and weird, even right? If someone insulted you, I don't think Jesus is saying offer them to insult you more.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I I think that what's the point of the passage? The point of the passage is don't, don't be, have revenge in your heart. I remember reading years ago um, Watchman Nee. I don't agree with everything Watchman Nee says, but I remember him reading, and it really struck me, his comment on this passage. I, I think I included some idea of it in this commentary. I forget even where I read it from him, but he can, said can you something— re-
0: Remind you, remind our listeners who Watchman Nee was? So Watchman Nee was a Chinese Christian, and he wrote uh, uh,
1: lots of books. I I remember one on Ephesians. Uh, It's a great title. I I think it was titled, I mean, I read it so many years ago, I may get the title wrong. But if I remember, it was Sit, Walk, Stand. Isn't that, that's a a nice way of thinking of Ephesians. You know, sit. you sit in the heavenlies with Christ, you walk with Christ, and you stand against those spiritual uh, forces. And he wrote, I think, another book. It was called The Normal Christian Life. He, he had, and I think he still has today, a big impact in China. I don't know when, I don't know the exact dates of his life, mm. but, but somewhere in the 1900s, right?
0: Mm. Maybe, maybe yeah.
1: you know that, Matt, exactly when he lived that and died. About right. But when I was a new Christian in the 1970s, I was reading Watchman Knee. So, um, but what he said about this passage is he said look you could turn the other cheek to someone and mechanically and outwardly obey what jesus says and be full of hatred full of rage in your heart and 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 i i think that's a important insight jesus isn't about the literal action here i mean there's nothing wrong with turning the other cheek, but I don't think that's the point of the passage. I mean, I, I think the same is true with the next statement. I don't think Jesus is really saying, if someone takes your coat, say to them, hey, do you want my shirt?
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> I think Jesus is saying, sit loosely to someone taking your things. If someone's if someone's mistreating you... um have a spirit where you're trusting God enough to uh, not clutch onto those things and have a spirit of revenge. Mm. So, you know, here's one thing I want to say. If someone were to say, well, now you're taking away from what Jesus is saying. You're trying to minimize what Jesus is saying. My reply is, I don't think so. I think it's extraordinarily difficult I think it's impossible for us not to be filled with revenge in those situations. Think if someone's insulted you. So what I'm saying about this passage, I think, fits with what Jesus is asking us to do. Jesus is saying, don't be filled with revenge in your heart. Hmm. I I can't do that on my own. And so I think this causes us to depend on the Holy Spirit to fulfill... uh, this admonition so i don't think i'm minimizing what jesus is saying so so i would argue and i think it fits with the majority christian tradition this passage is wrongly appropriated to say you can't engage in self-defense that there's that there's no place for war i would i would count myself I mean, I'm not an expert on this. I've read some on it, but I'd count myself as a just war theorist, first developed by Augustine. But I think there's a very simple way to think about this. When Jesus Jesus is saying, your focus here is not on personally requiting people who mistreat you.
0: Hmm.
1: But if if... So we can think of a family situation. I'm a father. If a killer comes into my house and wants to kill my family, is Jesus saying here that is wrong? And I would say no, he's not saying that because protecting the innocent, which would include your family, protecting your innocent is the innocent is a good thing. Mm. It's it's not wrong, it's actually it's actually right. And, and if, you, if you write that large, that's really what the just war theory is all about. The just war theory is really applying what you do in your family. If someone came in to, God forbid, rape your wife, you would, if at all possible, restrain that person for justice's sake, for, uh, for love's sake. It's not because you hate the person who's doing that, but to protect uh, the innocent. Hmm. So here, here's another point I'd make, and you can jump in any time, Matt. I think, you know, in, in, when we look at Matthew and Luke, these sayings, uh, we, we have some interaction here with the Old Testament, and I don't th- Anabaptist interpreters tend to think that Jesus is abolishing what the Old Testament says, but I don't think that's true about justice. I don't think he's abolishing the Old Testament. I think he's helping us rightly understand it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that, that's so helpful, and one of the things that you mentioned is that some people will take passages like this, and they sort of see a, a contrast between uh, what Jesus is saying in the New Testament, maybe even other authors in the New Testament, but especially Jesus, with what then we see in the Old Testament. You've already kind of said you don't think that's the right way to view this, but I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more. Um, One example from the Old Testament, in the first few verses of Deuteronomy 7, God commands Israel to enter into the Promised Land and uh, to, quote, devote to destruction and show no mercy to the people who were living there. And I think for a lot of Christians and non-Christians, that just feels very different and, and perhaps even contradictory to not just the specific things that Jesus said in the New Testament, but even just the, the whole ethos that he seems to sort of um, give off as a person. Uh, and, and so they wonder, how do those fit together? So maybe just speak to that. How do you see um, those examples of violence and aggression in the Old Testament, often, often at God's command, fitting with jesus's admonition to love our enemies
1: yeah well that is a difficult question and there are some yeah there are some who want to reject uh those texts even as the word of god Uh, you know i mean i've run across more than one person even who'd claim to be an evangelical who will say well you know supposedly god said that engage in destruction, but that was just the bad attitude of the Israelites. Right. I think that's really impossible to sustain
0: exegetically. At least if we want to hold to an inspiration, inerrant view of Scripture.
1: That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, I think the first thing I'd say, just, you know, to zoom out, you know, God, God holds the right to take people's lives when He wishes. And He takes... He takes lives in different ways. God, God is sovereign over life and death. Yeah. We read in a number of scriptures, you know, Hannah's song. God, God, God kills and God makes alive. So God brings down the and and God raises up. If God gives the Israelites a command, as his people, to wipe out a certain civilization... He has, he has the right to do that. Now, I, th- I think we'd want to say, and I think most Christians would agree on this, of course, there's covenantal differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hmm. Israel, Israel as a people was both a spiritual people and a political entity, a governing entity. And, uh, of course, the Church of Jesus Christ, we're not a nation. We're, we're in every nation now. There's no particular nation that today is God's people, but Israel is God's people. Was charged to uh, purify the land and put to death the people in it, and it's it's very interesting to read Genesis 15, because in Genesis 15 God says to Abraham, um, "No, Israel will not enter this land yet, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." So God was patient. Hmm. Uh, it was 400 more years, well, maybe, it depends on your dating, 400 to 600 more years before um, the people in those lands were were uh, punished by God. Hmm. So God was very patient. I, I, I think everyone would agree, look, there's no war, there's no war today that is the match the war the Israelites were to carry out on, on the people of the land where they were to kill you know, in, in many cases, every man, woman, and child and, and burn everything in the city. Now, they didn't do that in every case, but in many cases, there was this total destruction, this harem. So that, I think most would agree, look, that was a unique situation. If you hold to inerrancy and infallibility, God gave that specific command to the Israelites. Interestingly, I forget the passage, Deuteronomy 21. If the nations were outside the land, Israel was to uh, try to negotiate a peace with them, and they didn't have the same call to annihilate every man, woman, and child. Hmm. So we have to recognize there are some specific differences between the testaments. Yeah. But then, but then, I think to get to your question, I don't think, I don't think the New Testament itself. And Jesus' teaching is rightly interpreted to say that war itself, by definition, is evil. We, one thing I'd say is I don't think Jesus is addressing that question per mm. se. Je, Jesus is talking about personal relationships. And I think it's very interesting to look at Romans 12 and 13, because at the very end of Romans 12, Paul says something very similar to what Jesus says. And he says, don't avenge yourself, right? Don't, don't take vengeance on others. But if, but, if you're, but if your enemy mistreats him, feed him. And, and, and give your enemy something to drink. Hmm. And uh, treat them with kindness. Don't, don't requite them. Don't take vengeance on them. What does Paul say? Overcome evil with good. So i just want to pause right there and say again well those are nice words but that's amazing that's i mean we all have to confess our sins here to to have that just to think of that requirement as hmm. something that's uh, uh very much in the spirit of jesus but the very next passage in romans 13 paul turns to the government and there Paul says the government has a responsibility to carry out justice and the government does not bear the sword in vain which by the way i think is talking about capital punishment but i think there's a there's a principle in that passage that governing authorities play a role that personal that individuals personally do not and so if you if you put what jesus says with the old testament or with what paul says in romans 12 and 13 i think we can put it together this way personally and individually we're we are we are not the agents of justice in the world Hmm. we jesus teaches us paul teaches us don't take vengeance have a spirit of forgiveness and non-retaliation but but governing authorities have a responsibility to protect their citizens and to see that justice is done and it's an imperfect world but uh, there are there are instances where i think it is right and good to defend by violent means to defend people from those who want to inflict evil on others hmm. And, and and the first thing we have to say is, of course, in every situation like this, the good guys the good guys, are there good guys? The good guys sin too. Because it's not a perfect world. There's no perfect war, right? Hmm. But but we have to be careful of not being naive and simplistic. Yes, the the the, the side that's in the right will sin in the war, and there's no excuse for that. But that doesn't mean the war itself uh, was wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's interesting that the way you're phrasing this, you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of saying the New Testament seems to suggest that um, there's a certain appropriateness for governing authorities to, to uh, wield the sword in a way to pursue justice that individuals don't have the right to do. Um, it, it feels a particularly... An interesting kind of teaching today, in light of just the, the way we're, where we're at as a culture, because it seems like more than ever before, there is a certain skepticism about the the uh, the state's use of force in the pursuit of quote unquote justice, um, and maybe uh, more than ever before, kind of a perhaps in certain camps, an openness to personal you know judgment and pursuit of justice, even with. Things like violence. So, so I guess, how, how do you think about that? It seems like the Scripture presupposes that um, the governing authorities are truly pursuing justice, and yet, what we look around and we see that maybe there are examples where it doesn't seem like that's actually happening, or um, that's be, that's the uh, that's the facade uh, behind which people are doing wrong. So how do we how do we actually take and apply this teaching today when when it seems like that happens?
1: Yeah. Well, it's complex. You know, it's complex because we also have Revelation 13, right? The state can also act as a beast, as an antichrist. Surely, I mean, the the, the governing authorities put Jesus to death. Hmm. The uh, governing authorities mistreated Paul and
0: the apostles in Acts. So it's not like Uh, Jesus and Paul were naive about how morally upright and virtuous the government would always be.
1: Exactly. You know, it's it's fascinating, Matt, because some people read Romans 13 as if Paul never thought of, because Paul says in Romans 13, by the way, you know, obey the government, it's a force for good. And some people have read that passage and said, oh, you know, Paul never, Paul wrote that when Nero was in his good phase as the emperor of Rome. By the way, Nero was the emperor at a relatively good phase, and then he really went towards the evil side towards the end of his reign. So some people read that and say, well, you know, Paul wrote that when Nero was good, and he didn't really think of the fact that he that the governments could do wrong. And my response to that is, are, are you serious? I mean, Paul read the Old Testament. He saw what what Pharaoh did to the Egyptians, right? He he knew about Nebuchadnezzar, right? and <laughs> you know, I and and he knew what Rome did to Jesus. And, and Paul wasn't naive, so so it's complex, right? Governments. Governments can be forces for evil. The, the biblical writers know that. There are times to resist government. We, we think of, even in the 20th century, we think of the horrors of the Nazi regime. You know, we can think of the, the, the regime in North Korea today. Um, so there, every, judge, every government has to be judged in terms of relative terms no no government is perfect some governments are better than others that's obvious people are fleeing you know with all the problems the united states has there's a reason immigrants want to come to the united states we're not guaranteed that it'll be a good place to be forever we we could turn into a very evil regime obviously there's evil here too i'm not being simplistic but some governments are better than others. That's, that's obvious. And uh, that's been true all through history. So Christians reflecting on, in, in terms of just war, have, have argued we have to use discernment. Is, is the war truly a just one? That takes moral reflection. And in, in terms of motives and aims and uh, intentions, those are complex issues, and the hope is that leaders will exercise that kind of prudential judgment before engaging in violence. I would say that vigilante violence, I think, is ruled out. I mean, you can always think of exceptions, right? Are there exceptional cases? Obviously, if someone's coming to kill—at least, I th- maybe I shouldn't say obviously, not everyone would agree— but it, if someone's coming to kill and destroy people i think there's a place for self defense but i'm 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 very hesitant about vigilante justice being carried out by um by people now the, the, we're talking about an extraordinarily complex thing you know the 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 reformers i'm sure you're familiar with this matt the reformers talked about is there a place for lesser magistrates to uh, rebel against uh, their superiors? And, and you could use an argument like that. I'm not going to try and solve this issue today, but you can use an argument like that to justify the Revolutionary War. That you had lesser magistrates in the colonies who were saying that what the British uh, government was doing was uh, fundamentally unjust, and and therefore uh, resistance was uh, was was valid. Hmm. Um, obviously, that's debated, and that'd be a rare situation. Hmm. But there yeah. are there are there are lower leaders who can. I think I think the principle is right. There can be you could think of it. You know, the states in our country. States could re- resist the federal government if they felt and had good moral reasons to say that the federal government was requiring things that are fundamentally unjust.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I- is there anything to the view, in your opinion, that in the New Testament Jesus is introducing? some kind of new social ethic that in some way advances the morality we see in the Old Testament? Maybe not, maybe not a contradictory ethic, but in some way kind of takes a step forward? Or do you think that would be uh, a misreading of the Old Testament?
1: No, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think there's an intensification and a clarity in Jesus's ethic that isn't—we don't have that same kind of clarity— uh, in the Old Testament I think people could read the Old Testament I think we understand how to read the Old Testament Better after hearing what Jesus says So Yeah, I think there is there is An advance in Jesus's teaching I don't think it's fundamentally At odds with the Old Testament But there's a clarity and intensification Of what it means So um, I think it's there in the Old Testament You think of the Ten Commandments right, don't murder, don't commit adultery, but you have that 10th commandment. Don't covet. And I believe that 10th commandment informs all nine. So at the end of the day, I think you see Jesus drawing that out, even in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. You know, it doesn't, not, Jesus says, do not murder. If you look at it through the lens of coveting, doesn't just mean don't murder, but don't be angry. Hmm. But 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 uh, so I think it's there in the Ten Commandments for those who are and and, in other sayings in the Old Testament as well. But it doesn't have this the same kind of clarity. And Jesus says it was, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And there are big debates on how to interpret that those sayings in Matthew five. Some people think Jesus is actually uh, advancing a new ethic over against the Old Testament i lean towards towards the view. Good people disagree on this, but I lean towards the view that Jesus is rightly interpreting the Old Testament, hmm. not not contradicting it. Yeah.
0: In, in those in those statements. Yeah. Another passage or collection of passages that are I think important for this conversation uh, is Luke 12:51 and and others like it, which. Which kind of sounds a different note than what we've just heard Jesus say earlier in Luke? Uh, He he says, "Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division." Mm. And then again in Matthew 10:34, it's even more stark. "Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword." What was Jesus getting at in in these verses?
1: Yeah, I don't think my reading, and I think most would agree here, is I don't think this has anything to do with war, physical war, violence.
0: So the sword is uh, metaphorical.
1: The sword is metaphorical of the division that comes in families and social units because of faith in Jesus. I mean, this happened in my very own family. I, When I came to faith in Jesus, it was... Uh, you know my family members those who aren't believers they're still friendly to me but there was a division that came about Mm, yeah and and we can think in most places in the world you know the, the the culture in the united states and the western world is quite different but families are so tightly bound together and everybody in the family believes the same thing and jesus is saying no, I've come to bring division because some are going to belong to me and some are not. And that's going to cut in two, uh, separate those family uh, units. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that's many, many people could still tell that story all over the world today. They love yeah. their family, but they love Jesus first. And I think Jesus is saying, don't think when you become a disciple well everybody in your family is going to necessarily agree with you now mm. if you come from a christian family and uh, that's a wonderful uh privilege and and joy if if everyone is a believer but many people don't have that experience and many people haven't had that
0: experience hmm. do you think even broadening out from families mm-hmm. is it appropriate to even apply those words and maybe that that reset expectation to, you know, our culture more broadly. It seems like in the last 50 years or so, there's been a certain breakdown of a cultural hegemony that Christians have enjoyed, where, you know, many, many people in our culture were at least claiming to be Christians in some way or another, and we, we, we kind of see that trending, uh, that, that changing over the last uh, few decades. Would this, would this passage speak to that at all and our expectations on that front?
1: yeah i think that's a very good uh, question and i i think so we we uh i mean i'm older so i i remember uh, days where uh, obviously the christian faith has always been opposed but it it, clearly the opposition is more more overt than than it was uh when i was younger Hmm. and and i think it can be hard maybe it's harder for older people than younger people generally because i think older people had this expectation that yeah. we'd be we'd be respected yeah. for being christians and uh and i you know i grew up before i was a believer i knew i should be a christian and follow jesus i really didn't even know what that meant hmm. but i i grew up in cultural waters where I knew I should be following God well I don't think that's I don't think most unbelievers now uh think that and so yeah. yes we we live in a different a different cultural arena and there are unique um, challenges and I think one of the challenges is we all want to belong we want to be at the center of what's of what's happening and I think maybe, maybe it was a bit of an illusion probably it was a bit of an illusion but I think Christians of past generations in the United States felt, well, we are at the center. (laughs) Yeah, right. And um, now we know, in a a more clear way, clearly things have shifted. We're not. We're we're clearly at the margins. But that's been the story of the Christian faith throughout history.
0: Yeah, right. So now let's turn to uh, what would be the correct application of uh, some of these passages that we've looked at specifically when it comes to what Jesus is teaching us about the use of violence, the use of force. So let's start with the first, maybe the simplest one to to explore. Um, How do we apply these passages to the issue of self-defense? Do do Christians have the right to use violence to defend themselves uh, when they're attacked?
1: Yes, I think Christians do have the right, since I think these passages are talking about being insulted and mistreated, I think Christians would agree you you want to use the minimum of force uh necessary not the maximum mm. you know but you want to do uh, you're permitted to do uh what you can to restrain evil mm. I th- I think that is legitimate I I do not interpret these texts as saying if someone wants to come up and and uh uh beat you up or kill you that you you simply should uh receive that
0: hmm. but
1: I think you can't defend yourself
0: and, and and an important distinction there that I think you drew out earlier was was that you would be able to use force and violence to stop you know stop the attack but you're not then going further and pursuing quote unquote justice you're, you're not doing more violence in order to punish that would be something that you would leave to the state is that right
1: well, that's right exactly yeah the, it's finally the state's role to to make things right but i think if someone's going to inflict physical harm on you you can restrain them in an appropriate way and uh I, our laws you know in the united states have been formed by uh, the christian faith and i think our laws reflect that hmm. that you, you can defend yourself but the the defense needs to be restrained it's interesting in the old testament right that if that the thief comes during the day You, the Old Testament says you can't kill him. Hmm. Now, I don't think that applies literally today because the thief today may come or whatever is happening. They may come with a gun. Hmm. <laughs> but in the Old Testament, there's the recognition they're not going to hurt you during the day.
0: <laughs> oh, interesting. That, that, that's what is assumed behind that command.
1: I think so. I think so, uh, because they say at night,
0: well, if you kill
1: them at night, it's you're you're off, you know?
0: Huh, so, interesting. Yeah. So then what about um, sort of a related issue, not defending your own self, but then maybe defending other people who— you know, it could be your family, it could be uh, someone who is just weaker or more vulnerable than you are. Uh, do, are there any other ways that we would apply Jesus' teaching in that situation?
1: Yes, I, I think it'd be very similar. Uh the defense of others who are about to be harmed, I would actually argue that that is the loving thing to do. Jesus is, Jesus is teaching if someone wants to insult you or mistreat you or take advantage of you, don't let revenge grow in your heart. But to stand by, I think this is true in terms of the whole canon of scripture and some of the things we've talked about, but to stand by. And to allow other people who you love, or maybe you don't love, to be uh, mistreated, who are innocent, to be killed or wounded or raped or maimed or brutalized, I think is uh, actually unloving Hmm. and uh, unjust. So again, you want to use the minimum of force necessary. But, you know, we can think of you can think of a contemporary example. I, I think I read recently of a case where a guy rush, rushed the cockpit of the plane. Did you see this story recently? I didn't. And and, and uh, the people on the plane restrained him. Hmm. They didn't. They didn't beat him up. They they just restrained him. They got yeah. on him. Maybe maybe they gave him a punch or two. I don't know what happened. Hmm. But I think what they did was absolutely right. He he. Uh, who knows what his designs were, but presumably he wanted to bring the whole plane down. Yeah, and uh, it was right for him to be restrained, and they restrained him. And then uh, they, as, as you pointed out uh, in the earlier question, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't the judge and the jury. Then he was delivered over to the authorities when the plane landed. Mm. But I think that's a perfect example of what we're talking about, and I think. Most of us who have an informed moral judgment would say, "Yes, that's ex- the exactly right thing to do in that yeah. situation." You saved h- the lives of hundreds of people by restraining that person on the plane. Hmm. Yeah. And whatever. So if the if the restraint, yeah, I mean, if, let's let's take that illustration. If the restraint reached the place where you had to kill him, I think that would be just. Hopefully, it doesn't require that. But if it requires that. Uh, then I think killing in that case to save the lives of many other people would be would be justified.
0: Yeah, well, then let's let's turn to that third category then, perhaps the most uh, in some ways debated and contentious of all, um, the issue of war uh, in general. Would you say that Jesus' teaching supports the notion of a just war?
1: Yes, I think so. Because, as I argued earlier, I don't think Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament, but rightly interpreting it. And, of course, there are some complexities there that we talked about. But I think that just war theory writes large what we were talking about at the personal level. So some, some wars are easier than others. I think most would agree that the in World War II, what the Nazis were doing was unjust and that they needed to be stopped and they needed to be restrained. And so what the Allies did, although the Allies committed sin, obviously, and did wrong here and there, maybe a lot of times, but the overall aim of the war was just because they were preserving the lives of people from a from a really brutal uh, dictatorship that that mi- was mistreating many people and, uh, and of course we know that now even the full extent of those they were putting to death so there are ca- there are instances where uh, going to war is right and that's an extraordinarily difficult situation we pray for our leaders it's not always easy to discern what the right thing to do hmm. but i but i think uh those who say that the pacifist response is the only right moral response. I think that they're mistaken.
0: Yeah. So it's not that it's not that you would be arguing that any specific war or every war is always just. It's just that there is a fear, you know, a category permitted in scripture for the idea of a just war, and maybe Christians would then disagree and, and debate: Does this war um, meet that threshold for justice or not?
1: Yes, and and uh, I think. Christians have developed, starting with Augustine, very careful criteria to uh, assist us in determining whether a war is just, and that's not always easy. I remember I read uh, many years ago a book by Michael Novak titled Moral Clarity in the Nuclear Age, and that's an extraordinarily difficult question, should Hmm, you ever use nuclear uh, arms. But i think i think that book and it's probably out of print books go out of print quickly but i think that book is a is a very helpful book even if you don't agree with michael novak to assist us in thinking through uh what does it mean in a, in a nuclear age to uh abide by a just war theory
0: mm, yeah such weighty weighty questions and topics and as you said very often very complex uh But, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us about uh, this really important topic that does seem to touch on so many facets of our lives and our experience uh, as citizens of a country. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. I've really enjoyed it, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. That was Tom Schreiner on whether or not Jesus taught a form of pacifism. For more, be sure to check out his commentary on the book of Revelation in Crossway's ESV expository commentary series. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show.